You can find Genesis chapter 1 one more time. Taking it easy on you with the page and through Scripture here, but we are continuing our series on foundations, the foundations of our faith and some foundational questions. And this morning, we're actually continuing our discussion of a very foundational question, which is what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be made in God's image? Who are we as people? And so we're going to go back one more time to the book of Genesis and read some verses together. Uh, Some of the verses we read already, some of them are going to be a little bit new, at least for this discussion. But we're going to start with verse 27 of chapter 1, and then we're going to go into chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Verse 27 of Genesis 1 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I have in my pocket today a gift for one lucky person here. I'm going to give it to somebody. Um, I may ask for it back at the end of the service. I probably should, but I I forget things like this. If I forget, you can keep it. Um, The gift is actually a toy. Uh, It is a toy that people love to play with. No matter what age you are, uh, you probably like this toy. It's a very popular toy. In fact, it was was voted the toy of the century. And I I will even let you play with this toy throughout the rest of the sermon time today, okay? So I'm going to show it to you, all right? Here it is. Who would like this toy? Okay, Kimberly would like this toy. Okay, Kimberly. Come on. Yes, it's for you. I know where to find you. Okay, enjoy playing with your Lego. Wait, let me see that again. No, go ahead, take it back. People know what a Lego looks like. You can hold it up. This is my Lego. All right. Um, I don't know how distracted Kimberly will be for the rest of the sermon, but probably not. I wasn't really that concerned that the recipient of this gift would be all that distracted by it. Why? Well, because unless Kimberly knew what I was going to do and happened to bring along at least one other Lego to church today, it's a pretty useless toy, right? And what's she going to do with it? By definition, you can't really play with a Lego. Well, I guess you can, but you can't really play in any kind of a meaningful way with a Lego unless you have at least one other Lego available, and preferably a whole bunch of them. A single Lego is actually a pretty pathetic toy. It's mostly just a choking hazard. Well, that one was pretty big. I don't think you could choke on that. 
But, or a hazard where you step on it upside down in the night and, and, and hurt yourself really badly, right? That's what a Lego is if it's only one. You see, Legos are not self-contained. They are not self-sufficient as a toy. They are meant to exist only in the company of other Legos. A Lego cannot really embrace its Legoness, cannot really embrace all that it is designed to be, unless it is somehow connected to at least one other Lego, right? So I'm guessing that most of you already have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to talk about today. Human beings are like Legos. We are meant to exist in relationship. We are not designed to operate alone or to go it solo. And by definition, by definition, we need each other. We need one another, and this capacity for meaningful and interdependent relationships with other human beings is part of what constitutes the image of God within us that he's gifted us with. Part of the image of God is needing to relate to other human beings. Now, we have to be very, very careful here not to put this argument in reverse and recreate God in our image. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Human beings are incomplete in a way that God is not incomplete. God is self-sufficient. God is all-sufficient. There is nothing at all that is incomplete about God, and yet God is a relationship. God is in relationship, and this was true of him even before he brought into being the angels or humankind or any other part of creation. See, when God creates man here in Genesis chapter 1, did you notice he seems to be talking to himself? In fact, he even uses the word us to refer to himself. Now, that might sound strange. There are varying interpretations of where this word us comes from and why it's used here, but the most common and natural understanding, especially when you consider the expression that follows it in our image, is that here we have at least the first hint of what is called the Trinity, that God exists as one God, one God with one essence, one will, one set of attributes, but that God exists in three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is a great mystery. We're never going to completely comprehend it, but but each of these persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of them possesses all of the characteristics of God. It isn't like the Father has some, and the Spirit has some, and the Son has some. No, they are all equally God, but they have a cooperative relationship, and they work together. The persons of the Trinity work together to perform all of God's works that he does. Think about this. Did God become a God of love when he made creation and started loving it? Or was God already a God of love before he created the universe? He was already a God of love. He was already, God never changes. He was a God of unconditional, unselfish, generous love even before he made the universe. But you might ask yourself, Well, how could that love be expressed? Well, it could be expressed as the God who was all-sufficient in himself, nevertheless carried on an eternal and perfect love relationship within himself, within the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when it came to creating humanity, God added nothing to himself by creating us. He didn't need us in order to become loving or even in order to become more loving. But in his good pleasure... 
because he wanted to, to demonstrate his own glory, to demonstrate his love, God created us in such a way that he could invite us into this circle, invite us into this eternal circle of perfect love that had always existed within himself. Now, all that stuff is kind of deep and kind of mind-blowing, but to me it's a pretty awesome privilege when you think about God making us to be able to relate to him in that way. But God did not share with us his self-sufficiency. God did not share with us his his all-sufficiency, but he did share with us that part of his image that involves the capacity for meaningful and cooperative and loving relationships. But when he did this, because we're people and not God, God also then made us, by definition, incomplete. Human beings are, by definition, incomplete. We are Legos. That's how he made us. And the first expression we see of this happens right here in chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Male and female. It appears that being male and female is a necessary part of what it means to be human. It's part of the deepest part of us. It's part of our definition as humanity. And here's where we have to go on a little side journey for the next 10 minutes or so that would have been unnecessary just a few years ago, but today we have to do this. And that is because our society today is incredibly confused about this male-female thing. So let's kind of join hands together for the next 10 minutes and walk through the cultural minefield together, okay? Let's do that. Uh, and, And I came across a really good article this week, actually. Um, I'm going to refer to it a couple times, but the guy who wrote it, it's on the Desiring God website. Uh, I can give you the link if you want to look it up. It's by a guy named Christopher Wan, who was a, a professor at Moody Bible Institute. But what I liked about it was not that it had anything really um, you know, new by way of, of concepts, but the structure of it was good because the article, and I'm going to do this for you today, the article distinguishes between four elements of our sexuality that we often c- get confused when we think about things like this. And those elements are sex, gender, norms, and calling. Sex, gender, norms, we'll talk about what that means, and calling, or you could use the word roles when we get to to calling. Sex, in our context here, that word is a biological classification. It is a physical thing. And it is part of what makes us relational people. The Hebrew words that are, uh, that use, that are used here for the words male and female actually come from roots that suggest the physical anatomical differences between men and women, that we are incomplete without one another. And contrary to what many are, are teaching today, sex is not assigned at birth by a doctor or by a parent or by anybody else. Sex is hard-coded into our DNA from the moment that we are conceived. And it involves not only a set of reproductive organs, but other characteristics like muscle mass and bone density and voice range and any other number of things that that typically differentiate men from women. But there is a hint here, and I'm not a a doctor or a biologist or anything like that, so I'm going to stop when it comes to that stuff. I'm going to stop right here. But I will say this. There is an idea here in Genesis that this idea of male and female goes beyond just the physical differences. 
First of all, even though the animals, most of them are also divided into male and female versions of the species, right? Only in the case of human beings is this made a big deal of. Only in the case of humans is it even brought up. Not only that, but the idea of male and female for human beings is connected in some way with this idea of being made in God's image. If you look at verse 27, there's three phrases there, but the last two phrases, in the image of God he created him, and male and female he created them, those are parallel expressions. In Hebrew poetry they form a couplet, which means there is a very important logical relationship between those two lines, the one about being in the image of God and the one about being male and female. So there's apparently something about our maleness and our femaleness that goes beyond the physical, beyond our hormones, and to some deeper level, even to the spiritual level. And it's tempting here to introduce the idea now of gender, because gender often refers to those non-physical parts of what it means to be a man or a woman. But there's a problem here because what our culture refers to today as gender is something very different from the biblical idea of maleness and femaleness being part of our spiritual reality. Gender as it's used today, and how you will mostly hear it referred to today, is a psychological term. What it refers to is whether I feel like a man or a woman or both or neither, or in between. And I'm not saying that to be disparaging. I'm saying this is, this is where it's at right now, regardless of what my physical body may have to say about the situation. And as such, gender has become today primarily a matter of self-expression. It's who I am. It's who I've decided to be. We use the term gender identity. You will hear that all over today. The term gender identity, it means this, that identity that I have chosen for myself based on how I feel in my mind and in my heart. And if that causes a conflict with my body, between my mind and my body, then my mind wins. The subjective feeling that I have that I, of who I really am, that's the truth, even if I have to, to, to say no to my body or even in some sense alter my body to match the gender that I perceive myself to be. Now, people who are dealing with this kind of confusion need our love. They need our compassion and our understanding. They also need us to recognize that this, that, that, that this issue is not just about sex and gender. It's mostly about what we call autonomy or self-expression, the idea that I can, in, in the place of God, decide who I am, decide what I am, decide who I'm going to be. But the Bible is very clear that God is the one who assigns those things, not us. But if I take it a little bit farther, and here's where maybe a lot of the controversy is happening in our culture today. If I am a parent and I have these children... I'm going to need to keep an eye on my children to make sure that they don't just assume their gender based on what their body looks like because their body might be wrong. And so if my daughter puts down the Barbie doll and starts using G.I. Joe to rig the enemy base with explosives, then maybe that's because she's really a he. Or if my son decides that his favorite color is pink and he's always trying to walk around in mom's shoes instead of playing with the Tonka trucks, then maybe that's because he's a she. But do you see where we're going here? Do you see where we're getting these things from? Where are we getting these ideas that supposedly determine our gender? And the answer is mostly we're getting them from what we might call cultural norms, things that we expect. 
common ideas and stereotypes about what it means to be masculine and feminine, and these are all around us. And this is an area, by the way, where we Christians need to examine ourselves, and we need not to just be shaking our fists at a godless and lost culture, because we need to realize the church can actually become part of the problem here if we start getting ideas about what is masculine and feminine, not from the Bible, but from the dominant culture. By some definitions, by a lot of definitions, to be a man today, to be masculine, even to be a Christian man, is to be, among other things, insensitive, unemotional, and inartistic. Okay, guys? Guys, let me tell you something. I can show you a sensitive, emotional, harp-playing poet who can kick your butt. His name is David, and he is a man after God's own heart. Right here in Genesis, in a few chapters, we're going to have the story of two very unidentical twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau, the older one, is, is much, much closer to today's masculine ideal, much closer. Esau is a rough-and-tumble guy. Esau is a hunter. Esau has a really full beard. He does. And you know what Esau is? He's also a grill master. He, he really knows how to cook up the meat, it says. And if Esau lived in Lexington, he would probably open Esau's pit cook barbecue, and it would probably be pretty popular. Guys, full confession here, okay? Dawn does most of the grilling at our house. Several years ago, I fed her a couple of very underdone hamburger patties, and she kind of took over and, and hasn't given it back for the most part. So I, I know I just, I just gave up one of my man cards there, but, but you know what? I, you know what? I'm still a man. Look at Esau's brother, Jacob. Esau's brother was the ultimate homebody and what we would obviously call today a mama's boy, right? No question about it. But listen, when it came time to choose who would be the patriarch, who would be the father of God's chosen people, whom did God pick? Not the man's man. He picked the mama's boy. So, not to say anything negative about guys like Esau, but Jacob apparently was masculine enough for God to use him. Now, when it comes to the other sex, if you check out the ideal wife in Proverbs chapter 31, great, verse, great chapter to read through sometime, um, you will see a woman there who is active not only in caring for her family, but she is also skilled and involved in finance and industry. Over in 1 Samuel chapter 25, we meet a lady who is described like this. Her name is Abigail. And Abigail is a quick-thinking woman who literally just takes control of a whole situation, a very desperate situation, and saves the lives of every man in her family's estate. Over in the New Testament, we see Jesus' ministry is largely financed. The Gospels tell us this. Largely financed by his female followers. And we note, and we get to the book of Acts, that the very first Christian convert on the continent of Europe is a female entrepreneur who appears to be on an extended business trip when she encounters the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful we do not import our definitions of masculine and feminine into the Bible, but instead, let's allow the Bible to speak for itself about these things. There are young people out there today. There are mild-mannered, artistic young men there are athletic or mechanically-minded young women. 
and many others who are questioning today whether they feel like a man or feel like a woman just because their masculinity or femininity doesn't fit into some particular stereotype people have, or maybe even because they don't feel attractive enough to the opposite sex to qualify as a woman or a man. If we today in the church fail to recognize the great diversity of temperament and ability and interest that God has placed within both the sexes, and we end up defining masculine and feminine too narrowly, then we may just be contributing to the anxiety and to the alienation of people around us who are questioning what it means to be a man or a woman in these confusing times. We are surrounded by people today that are confused here. They need to be loved by the church. They need to be affirmed, not for their gender, but because they are made in God's image like all of us. Now, the Bible is, is, is never very explicit about describing exactly the non-physical characteristics of men and women that distinguish them. We certainly can make some generalities from observation. And let me tell you, I openly talk about these generalities all the time, especially when I'm in marriage counseling and pre-marriage counseling. I openly talk about this, and we bring it up, that, that in general, women tend to be more nurturing and sensitive, and men tend to be more aggressive and decisive. In general, men tend to greatly desire respect and admiration, while women usually long more for affection and security. But these are really rules of thumb. They hold true largely, but you can't be dogmatic about them with everybody. Not always. The best we can do is really to work backwards from the roles that God has given to men and women because God has, in the Bible, given men and women different roles, different functions. But we also need to remember this, that those roles, those functions, show up almost exclusively in two places, the family and the church. Really, marriage and the church. Outside of those two institutions, the Bible does not give us a lot of rules about what a man or a woman is like. Nowhere is a woman ever called to listen to or yield to a man just because he's a man and she's a woman. Nowhere is a single man or a single woman called to act like a husband or a wife around the opposite sex. And an unmarried person is not any less of a male or female than a married person. His or her sexual identity is a gift that came from God and is in fact part of what it means to be made in His image. And you know what? Marriage doesn't complete us, no matter what it says in Jerry Maguire, okay? Marriage doesn't complete us, and yet we are incomplete. Marriage is a huge, very important, very, very foundational relationship, but single people can also be complete as they own their incompleteness and connect to others. We need each other in all these relationships, not just the marriage relationship. Okay, that's the end of our tour through the minefield. Did we make it? We'll find out. Come see me in, the office, in my office. Um, let me just transition back to, to the main idea by reaffirming to you that gender, okay, if we are to call it that, is something, yes, there are only two of, and it's tied to our biological sex, male or female. Gender, but the, the big idea is that gender is not to be a mode of self-expression where I decide who I am. No, it is something given to us by God as an expression not of our completeness, not of our individuality, not of our independence, but of our dependence and our incompleteness. It is an expression of our beautiful incompleteness as people that we are made male or female. Now, let's look at these verses in chapter 2 in the time we have left here. 
Throughout the process of creation, God has been saying something over and over again. He's been saying, it is good. It is good. It is good. Almost at every turn, you see God describing what he has made as good. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of jarring, but in verse 18 of chapter 2, all of a sudden, God says, it is not good. Well, what is not good? He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Well, what does Adam need in order to make it good again? He needs two things, both identified here. He needs help, and he needs companionship. He needs help, and he needs companionship. We need help, and we need companionship, just like Adam. God calls the woman a helpmate or a suitable helper, and indeed, Adam was going to need her help. We need to realize Eve was not made as a servant for Adam, nor was Eve made to be Adam's boss. She didn't, camp, she didn't come from his feet. She didn't come from his head. Where did she come from? His rib, his side, which means she was made to be his partner. He was obviously going to need her help. First of all, if mankind was going to multiply on the earth, he was going to need her help, right? Because as much as he could try to do that on his own, it wasn't going to happen. And most of you ladies today would probably agree that Eve got the hard part when it came to this assignment. It gets harder in chapter 3. And of course, Adam needed her a lot he needed her help, and all these, God had given him a lot of tasks to take care of the garden, to care for all these animals, to name them, and all. I mean, and I would not be surprised if Eve turned out to be the more organized of the two of them, just saying. But Adam also needed a companion. He needed someone who would understand him, someone who would relate to him in a way that none of the animals ever could. When, when Adam first lays eyes on Eve, and it's, it, it comes out pretty good in the ESV that I read, but the word he uses is a word of excitement. He says, this, now this is what I'm talking about. That's, that's how we'd say it today. This, this is the answer. This, this person is just like me, only different. This is someone I can be with. This is someone who will understand. This was someone who can, can enjoy alongside of me all these wonderful blessings that God has created and is giving to us, which is awesome. We can talk about these things. We can relate. But she's not exactly the same as me, I can tell. I'm thinking she's going to have a different angle, maybe a different opinion. Talking to her will not be just like talking to an echo of myself. I won't know what she's going to say. I may have to kind of figure her out. And this may take a while. <laughs> he didn't know the half of it, did he, guys? <laughs> but he's looking forward to it. Now, I'm obviously putting some extra biblical words in Adam's mouth here. But you get the idea. Eve, as his own flesh and bone, alike but different, could give him something that no one else could. She had her own mind. She had her own soul. She had her own humanity. She could experience God in the same way that he could. And in order to fully embrace the capacity for deep relationship that God had put within him, he would need someone like her, someone to share life with. That's what God gave him. And so do we. And again, I'm not just talking about marriage, but about human relationships in general. God made us Legos. God made us so that we would need each other. We are embracing our full humanity only when we are living in community, and in relationship with other people. So let me ask you this. Who was the most complete human being that ever lived? 
So you can give me the Sunday school answer. It's good. Okay, yeah, there we go. Okay, yeah. yeah. So let me ask you this about Jesus. Did he need other people? Did Jesus need other people? Now, it might sound like a trick question because there are some ways in which we need people that Jesus didn't. For instance, he was not so dependent like we are on, on people's opinion. He didn't live or die based on what everybody thought of him, whether they liked him or not. Jesus did not need his identity or his worth to be constantly affirmed by other people because he was totally secure in who he was. He knew who he was. So Jesus did not need other people in some of the more dysfunctional ways that we sometimes need other people. But, on the other hand, of course Jesus needed other people. He needed parents to bring him up. He needed teachers to help him learn. When later on he gets into his ministry, he depended upon those women we were talking about for much of his financial support. And he also depended a lot on his disciples. He didn't have a boat, right? He had to borrow theirs. He couldn't visit dozens of cities and towns at the same time, but they could if he employed them to do it. He couldn't feed 5,000 people all by himself. I'm reminded of this every time I have to pass out 12 agendas at a board meeting. It takes me forever. Yeah, Jesus did the miracle, but who fed the 5,000? Not him. The disciples did it. It strikes me that perhaps the most evangelistic, at least the longest evangelistic conversation that Jesus ever had in the Gospels started out with his expressing a need and asking for help from another person when he went up to a Samaritan woman and he said, can I please have a drink of water? He was thirsty. He needed her help. And he needed more than help. Jesus needed companionship too. This was particularly evident during the end of his life. On that last supper, the night before he died, he said this to his apostles. He said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why? They were his friends. They were the ones he wanted to be with on a special and difficult night like this. Later on that night, he said to his closest friends, he said, please, please stay up with me while I pray. Can you, can you stay here and just watch and pray with me because my soul is in agony. He wanted his friends to be with him at that time. He needed their companionship. Jesus was not the Lone Ranger. He needed his time alone, yes, like we all do, but he also needed people. He engaged in deep relationships. He accepted help from others, sometimes as readily as he gave it. In the end, he didn't even carry his own cross up that hill, did he? He needed help from another human being. Here's what I get from that by way of direct application. If we as followers of Jesus are trying to become more like Jesus, then we will immerse ourselves in community. Amen. Growing in Christ does not mean growing independent of other human beings, even though we are growing more dependent on God. If anything, it means being more interdependent, more connected to other people. Sometimes it means not being afraid to ask for help, even though a lot of us hate to bother people or inconvenience people. Sometimes it means stopping before you walk out the door of church and asking another person or family to join you at the restaurant. Sometimes it means picking up the phone and calling that person that you haven't seen in a few weeks, or maybe you saw them on Wednesday night, but things didn't really seem right, and you kind of want to find out what's going on. Sometimes it means being honest with another person 
whom you trust who asks you how you were doing and telling them that you're really not doing all that well. Let me ask you, is that how you would characterize your growth in Christ? As you grow in Jesus, are you just growing in knowledge? Or are you growing in relationship, not just with him, but with other people? Are you becoming more drawn into community or becoming more isolated from it? Now, this is a huge, huge challenge today, obviously, because our world has become so technologically sophisticated. It is possible today, it is possible today to conduct most of your life from eating to shopping to getting an education, even going to work, without having meaningful interaction with another human being. You can do so much of life now like that. And of course, we can do church the same way, right? Now we can. So let me, let me gently remind those of you who are watching from home that you are missing something this week by not being here in person. And I know there's different reasons why that might have been necessary. I get it. But you are missing something. And even if you're one who's in attendance today, I will tell you that if Sunday morning is pretty much where it stops and you're not forming any relationships with the people around you, then you're also missing something. And Pastor TJ or I would love to talk to you about ways that we can help you find what you're missing. Did Jesus need other people? Yes, he did. But one of the things that happened to Jesus the night before his death was that his band of brothers was blown up and he lost all that support. His disciples failed him by falling asleep on him in the garden at his hour of need and then they scattered in fear as he was being arrested. And Jesus knew this was going to happen. In fact, he had predicted it that very night. He said, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to run away. And ultimately, he knew that, that his friends, his friends, even if they wanted to, could never have joined him up on that cross because that was part of his journey that he had to go through by himself. In fact, even his own father abandoned him at that moment. Now, many of you know something about loneliness. You do. You know about the pain of disconnectedness. You know that when you're lonely, when you feel like you're being rejected, you feel like you're being ignored, you feel like you're being dismissed by people, you, you almost feel less than human sometimes, right? And that's because, in a way, your humanity is being violated. You need people. You need people. As a church, we need, we need to be that place of connection for lonely people both those who might come in from the outside, but also those who are already here within our fellowship. Can you look around today and see people who are starving for lack of connectedness, lack of companionship, and they need help? We also need to understand this. There has never been anyone more alone than Jesus was on the cross. Never. He had everything taken from him, and he had everyone torn away from him. And we know that his death brought us new life. We know that his punishment brought us forgiveness. We know that that's why he died. But listen, we also know that his loneliness, his abandonment brought us relationship. His loneliness brought us relationship, not only with God, but with others as well. Jesus knew that his lonely sacrifice was going to result not only in the forgiveness of individual sinners, though it did that, but it was also going to result in the beginning of of a new community, which is what we are. Just as Jesus was not a Lone Ranger Christ, there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian 
It doesn't exist. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, not only does he give us new life, but he gives us a new family. He baptizes us into the body of Christ, into the church. And by the way, we have no choice in the matter. We Christians are stuck with each other, for better or for worse. This morning you saw 15 Legos up here joining our church. They didn't do it just to get their name on a roster. They didn't do it just to become eligible to teach a class or to, or to serve on the governing board. Some of them are like, wait, I can do that now? Ha, 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 yes, you can. <laughs> no, but they're signing up for more than that. At First Alliance, we do not do it perfectly, but we aim to be a family. We aim to do life together. We aim to know each other. We aim to celebrate together and rejoice together and to hurt together and to learn together and to love together and to truly worship God together by enjoying God in one another's presence. In short, we want to fully embrace our humanity by embracing our need for each other and in fact embracing each other. This is how God made us and this is what Jesus redeemed us to become.